campus of Yale University. This is To Live in Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Bobby Moresco, a real live Oscar-winning screenwriter. Bobby won the Academy Award for co-writing Crash. Uh, I got to know him when a friend sent him a pilot I wrote. Bobby came on board to work on it with me. So we spent a lot of time in his office re-breaking the story. And for me, it was like a masterclass in structure. Bobby does something I hadn't seen before, which is he comes up with what the most important or interesting or climactic scene is, writes it on a note card, and puts it up on the big board first. Could be a third act scene, could be smack in the middle of the show, then we build story around it. Before that, I'd only ever seen writers start from the beginning, from act one, and build a story chronologically. But Bobby's technique of figuring out a killer scene and then engineering story to fit around that is really, really smart. You know, after all, when you leave a movie or finish a show, what most often sticks in your mind is the most interesting scene. Um, I'm a big fan of Daniel Kahneman and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's a psychologist who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. I also really recommend Michael Lewis's book, uh, The Undoing Project, about Kahneman and his partner, Amos Tversky. So they revolutionized the way we think about decision-making, but something that's always stuck out for me from Kahneman's book is when he talks about the experiencing self versus the remembering self. And I think there's a serious lesson here for dramatists. Kahneman tells a story of someone who listened to a wonderful symphony, but how a dreadful screeching sound at the end of it ruined the whole experience for him. But of course the experience hadn't been ruined, right? What was ruined was the memory that he had of the experience. And the memory is all we get to keep. So think back to the last great movie you saw. For me, we went to see a revival uh, screening of Tootsie in the theater not long ago. Uh, The next day, I told my closest friend about the scene when Dustin Hoffman pulls off his wig on live TV and reveals that he's a man while declaring his love for Jessica Lange. Everybody remembers that scene, right, if you've seen the movie. It's the climax of the film. And then, of course, the ending when Hoffman and Lange walk off through New York City together and she gives him another chance. Leaves you walking out of the theater feeling like a million bucks. Now, there may have been sequences of the movie where my experiencing in the moment self was bored or felt like I was seeing something outdated or hokey, but because the climax of the film and the ending of the film were so great, as Kahneman explains, my remembering self raves about the film. And of course, the same thing applies in the reverse, you know, like with Kahneman's symphony example, or how we all watched dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of the TV show Lost, and we were enthralled. But the final hour of Lost was a disappointment. And that's how we remember the series, which is totally nuts, right? Six years of obsessing over a show, then a couple disappointing hours, and that's what colors the whole experience. So I think dramatic writers would do well to heed that. The climax and the ending, don't shortchange them. Give us big, fun, exciting scenes and end it uh, with a bang. You know, take a page from Bobby Moresco. Here he is. All right, so hi, Bobby. Aaron, how are you? I am good. It is, uh, let's see, it's 1.05 in New Haven, so it's about 10 a.m. in L.A. Have you started writing yet today? You know, I write 
the first thing I get up in the morning is I just go over my notes from the night before, but I don't actually write. I wait for my assistants to arrive because they do all the work. <laughs> That's interesting. So your notes from the day before, meaning like um, notes that you just took, you know, that you just sort of thought of, or you mean like an outline? Yeah. No, um, I mean, you know, we're continually working on story, as you know, uh -huh. and I'm working on a couple of things. So whatever project I'm working on, the last thing I do before I go to sleep is look at it and then try to sleep on what I consider to be, you know, the attack plan for the next day, you know, whether or not structure works, whether or not it's dialogue, et cetera. Uh, and so I, I always, you know, sleep on the next day's work. Um, then I wake up in the morning and more often than not, something comes. That's interesting. Something is not necessarily what comes, but something comes. And then I make my some guys come in. Yeah, so your, your mind, while you're sleeping, while you're dreaming, your mind is sort of... Um... Uh, sort of aware of the problems you think and turning it over. I think it's essential. I think it's absolutely essential. You know, whether or not people call it the alpha state, when you're most aware and most open to, you know, problems being solved and those answers coming to you, I think it's really essential for any artist to at least consider what the next day's work is and then let the mind work. You know, the unconscious is a, an amazing thing. We may not understand it, but it's smarter than we are. Wow. That's really interesting. No, I mean, I've heard, you know, a lot of writers like to meditate and they feel like they come up with a lot of interesting um, solutions while they're meditating. But that makes sense that um, doing it overnight while you're sleeping helps, too. Yeah. And very often, I'll, I'll, you know, I, I sleep with a tape recorder at my desk. You do. And very often I'll wake up in the middle of the night and, 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 and literally spiel off, you know, something that then my assistants the next day try to understand what the hell I said <laughs> in the middle of the night. But, you know, um, more often than not, it's something valuable, something that, uh, you know, consciously sitting at your desk looking at it, uh, it's not apparent. Wow, that's interesting. Don't uh, don't record over those tapes. Whoever, uh, whatever university <laughs> takes your archive one day is going to want those tapes. There, there, there you go. I love that. There you go. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Somebody just asked, somebody just asked for our, my handwritten notes on the first draft of, um, of a Million Dollar Baby. And oh, really? It was really, really fun. It was really fun to go back and look at the hard copy uh, to see what it was and see what the notes were and see what the movie became, which, you know, by most accounts, is a pretty good movie. Was the first, I, I love that movie, Million Dollar Baby, was the first draft uh, very far off from the shooting draft? I was not involved uh, in the first draft. Paul had uh, optioned a, a book called Rope Burns by FX Tool, who's a wonderful 70-year-old cut man who spent his life in the boxing world. One of the best books on boxing uh, I'd ever read, and uh, and he had five short stories uh, that he uh, wrote, and there was such a truth to it that um, Paul went out and bought the rights to the stories to three of them, and uh, he it, it didn't work uh, by his account because he called me up and asked me to come aboard and help make it work, and he was right, it didn't work, but it was fairly apparent when I read the first draft what didn't work was that Paul tried to adapt three of the short stories into a movie, and he only needed two. Uh, so as a producer, I came aboard and reworked the script with Paul, and uh, we got rid of the one storyline and based the entire movie on the relationship between Clint's character and, of course, the female boxer, Maggie. Right. That was a great decision. So, that you know, and, and Paul Haggis, you also wrote Crash with him. Um, was Million Dollar Baby the first time you worked with him, or had you had a relationship no, with him? No, 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 not at all. Paul, um, Paul had read uh, I, 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 my first spec script in the movies was something that uh, was based on a, on a biographical piece of a play that I had running in New York in 1988 um, 
starring, believe it or not, Michael Imperioli from later became famous in The Sopranos and mm-hmm. Dan Grimaldi and The Sopranos was also in that play. And uh, I, I, you know, I consider myself a playwright. I was working in the theater world. I had the actors gym, my theater company that I still have. You know, you've been there. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was trying to move from the world of acting, which I couldn't make a living at, to the world of writing and directing because I figured if nobody's going to hire me, I'll hire myself. <laughs> I'll do it myself. So I started writing plays, started to try to understand what writing is about, studying philosophy, poetry, the great writers, not just screenwriters, but playwrights and poets and philosophers. And, and eventually I did start writing and producing plays. And when this play was running, uh, a producer from Warner Brothers saw it and offered me my first job to uh, do a rewrite on a Warner Brothers project that was written by Reginald Rose, who wrote 12 Angry Men. Oh, wow. And uh, he was really sweet. He called me up and told me what he thought worked about the script and didn't. And so after writing my first screenplay, I decided to write a spec and try to get another job as a screenwriter. And Paul read that script that was based on my play and asked me if I would come aboard and do a television show with him, um, which was called Easy Streets. And so my first job in television was as a writer-producer with Paul Haggis on what uh, and you can look it up. Time magazine. Yeah. I think Time magazine said we were quite possibly the best show in the history of television. Yeah, it's a well-regarded yeah. show. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, so that was my first job, and that was my first working with Paul, and that was 1995, and we stayed friends and collaborators uh, to this day. Wow, but there's so much in that story. Can we go back for a second to Reginald Rose? I mean, Twelve Angry Men is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, well, so, there you go. what's he like? What's uh, well, he, he's as much as I know about him. You know, the producer, my, uh, who became a good friend later on uh, by the name of Norman Twain, had just produced a movie uh, with Morgan Freeman called uh, Lean on Me. Mm-hmm. Um, Lean on Me? Yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, Lean on Me. And, uh, and so we got a five-picture deal, and one of the pictures that he developed was a script that Reginald Rose wrote. But I didn't know Reginald Rose. I just knew Norman. And then, you know, he offered me this job, and I saw the name, and I said, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, we all know. And then my phone rings. And if you, want, you know, if you want to know the definition of class, this is what it is. <laughs> my phone rings. Here's this young upstart who has never written a screenplay in his life who is rewriting Reginald Rose. And wow. my phone rings, and I pick it up. He says, Bobby? I said, yeah. He said, this is Reginald Rose. And I went silent. I thought he was going to holler at me. I thought he was going to be mad at me because I was rewriting a script. And he said, do you have a minute? I said, yes. And he said, listen, I just want you to know, uh, I hear you're doing the rewrite, and I'm calling for you to do a great job. And I thought I'd send you my notes and tell you where I thought I failed and what I was after and where I thought some places might have succeeded. And I just want to lend you a hand to making it a better script. I love that. I love that. Yes. Um, you know, that's all you need to know about what it takes to have class as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Yeah, and I think we all would hope that if we wrote something as perfect as 12 Angry Men, that we could then just sort of be gracious and, you know, be okay with other people rewriting us or whatever happened after that, we would know that we wrote one of the perfect dramas of all time. And that's nice to hear. Maybe yeah, he did feel that way. Yeah, and, and, and uh, no, I think he just had the humility in terms of the difficultness of the craft. The craft of what we do um, is so difficult. You know, the, the, the likes of uh, William Faulkner and, uh, you know, Ernest Hemingway and, and others have failed at it. Fitzgerald, you too. Know? Yeah. yeah, Fitzgerald. I think he wrote one screenplay. Uh, he tried a couple. I think he got paid for a couple. One got made, and it was miserable. Oh, there's a great book about him in Hollywood, Crazy Sundays, I think it's called, about his failures in Hollywood, and you know that's when he became even more of an alcoholic. Yeah, it's a it's a yeah, it's a different medium. That's not 
not to say that any of us are better writers or no. even as good writers. It's to say that it's a different craft. It's right. a different muscle. And, uh, you know, uh, unless you try to conquer the specific muscle of writing screenplays, um, I think you're up against it. Right. No, and I totally agree. Reggie, I, think, yeah, I think a guy like Reggie Rose knew how difficult it was, and especially for a young writer like me, just wanted to lend a hand. I think that's, uh, we should all learn from that. That's great. Uh, you also mentioned, uh, you know, your background in acting. Um, I spent a year at the Actors Studio in the playwriting program, and they felt like their playwright should also understand how actors work. So I ended up taking three days a week voice class and two days a week acting class. I don't know if it made me a better writer or not, but um, you think it did. You think it does. Uh, I think there's no doubt. Uh, I, I, first of all, one simple thing makes you a better director. If you learn nothing else from being an actor, you learn the language of the actor. You learn the ability, the ability to communicate to an actor in a way that he can understand. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the missing link in many directors today. You know, whether or not you learn anything else, if you learn the language of the actor and you have the ability to communicate to him what you're after and in a way that he understands that your job as a director is just to say what you're after and he needs to filter it through his instrument, that's fantastic. But the miscommunication of directors who don't know the craft of the actor is constant, hmm. and it leads to fights and arguments, and the director saying, "Well, that's not what I meant. I don't want you to do everything I want you to do." Well, the director actually says, "That's what you said." Yeah, but I didn't know. I didn't mean to say it that way. And those arguments happen because they most directors, many at least, don't understand the language of the actor. So for that alone, you should go to acting class as a director. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe this is just semantics, but I'm I'm curious. Do you consider yourself, you know, what what would you put on your business card? Are you a writer? Are you a director? Are you a writer director? What are you? Oh, um, I don't know. Um, you, you know, I, I had to win an Oscar before I thought I'd be allowed to tell myself I was a writer. Interesting. That's what I do for a living. People used to ask me. I said, well, you know, I'm in, I'm, I'm you know, I'm in the movie business. I'm in the TV business. <laughs> uh-huh. you, you know, this dismantle of what you are. It's a difficult thing to, to hold on to. Um, uh, so I, I think I'm a storyteller. You know, uh, I feel more comfortable with that. I'm a guy who tries to tell stories, you know, and I, I do it in films. I do it in television. So I do it in plays. So mm-hmm. I guess I feel more comfortable with that. Somebody who tries to sell stories for a living. Makes sense. Um, you know, if, if I had to say it, I'd say I'm a writer-director. If somebody put a gun to my head and said, what are you? Right. I'd say I'm a writer-director. Who else will have to produce? Right. Um, so, you know, we worked together breaking story on a pilot about the beginnings of the Secret Service a while back. And I remember you had a really interesting method, which is that you come up with, you know, what might be the most gripping, exciting scene. And you'd write that on a card and put it up on a board. Um, no matter where in the pilot that it might be, maybe it's a third act scene, maybe it's, you know, smack in the middle. And then we'd work around that engineering the story to lead up to whatever that incredibly exciting climactic moment, uh, was. Do you, do you still do that? Do you do that consciously? Is that, is that sort of a method you have? No, I I definitely do it consciously. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Einstein's rules of work out of the chaos, find simplicity from discord harmony. And what I mean by that is the chaos and the discord of trying to find a story early on reveals great stuff to you. You don't know where it lands in your story, but you know it's pretty great stuff. So you put a card up and say, I got that scene, or I got this scene, or I got that scene. And then little by little, you've strung together a series of incidents slash scenes um, that begin to reveal a story. But I always start like that. I mean, uh, in, in the room right now, I've got my 
to assistance with me. Um, and I would say if I said to them, how many pages of notes do I usually have? And they'd say, well, over 100 pages of notes and 50 cards, minimum. Then, you, you know, you pair those 100 pages of notes or 150, sometimes more, um, and you pair them down and you start doing whatever the scenes that don't serve your story. And very often, by the way, I think, you don't know what your story is going to be. You think you have an idea on a character uh, or um, maybe a theme, maybe something else, and you start exploring it, and they say, oh, wow. You catch something in some of your research or some of your ideas and say, that's what my movie's about. I'm working with William Friedkin now, who's one of the legendary cool. directors uh, of all time. Yeah, The Exorcist, Yeah, uh, French Billy Connection. and I have a project together with, with John Cusack. And Billy and I were working yesterday uh, trying to do exactly what you're talking about, find a story. And we talked for maybe an hour and a half, and you know, I put everything on tape. Uh, and then about an hour and a half in, Billy said, you know, there's this idea too. And hour and a half, two hours in, we suddenly say, oh, that's the story. Hmm. So that first hour and a half was just digging into the world to try to find out what the story is. Yeah, and loosening the, you know, the top of the tomato can. Yeah, exactly. And then once you find it, then you start refining all those 50 or 60 cards or 40 or 30, whatever you have. You start throwing all those cards, uh, or you revise those cards to something that serves the story you just found. Right. If that makes sense. That's what I try to do. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, all right, so you're working with uh, with Billy Friedkin yesterday. You know, I remember when I was uh, with you in your office, you know, you just said that there were that you have your two assistants with you. There were always people walking in and out when I was there. So, you know, some writers need total silence. You, it sounds like you really thrive on having a little bit of chaos, on having a lot of people around, on having conversations happening. Oh, well, it, it, it's not about chaos as much as it's about talking through ideas, talking, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it's by discussing what you're after that reveals ideas, I think, you know, some actors need to sit alone in silence, you know, um, you know, I'll go back to Billy, if I say to him, I'm bringing the computer, he says, I'm bringing the computer, let's just talk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it's in the, and, and it's funny, because as you know, I work that way, uh, some writers, Paul Haggis, will, will go to a coffee shop, you know, and he was in the coffee shop, and he, you know, I think he still does this to this day. And, and he's just, you know, look, looking at people. Sometimes somebody will say hello and come in and out, but he's alone in his coffee table, at his coffee table, and wherever he is, in Starbucks, or there used to be a place called Pizza Santa Monica, he would go all the time. And he's in New York now, and I'm sure he goes somewhere in New York. We all find our own process. For me, the process of being able to talk things through is where ideas reveal themselves. Uh, and then in that talk, you know, I, I'll sit down if I have a structure. I'll sit down with Ian and Julie, my two assistants, and I'll say, here's what I think the structure is. And I talk it through, and then they'll say, no, what about this? What about that? What about this? And I'll say, yeah, maybe, or no, or that sucks. But we'll find out that we don't have a story. You know, the quickest way to find out you don't have a story is if you can't tell a compelling story. If you can't tell a compelling story that has some kind of a beginning, middle, and end, or some kind of a nexus that ties those things together, then you don't have a story. But suddenly, if I see Ian and Julia looking at me and saying, wow, that's really interesting, I know there's something there. Hmm. So for me, if you call that chaos, that's fine. Um, I call it exploring, you know, the world. Yeah. So, you know, I think what I really believe this to be the case. I think a lot of writers start writing hoping that they know what the world is as opposed to not writing at all, but just exploring the world and understanding it better to give you the place where you can write. You know, we don't know, never do a commercial, uh, we do know something before it's time. What was that, John Houseman? 
we will do no anyway. We will do no writing before it's time. There you are. Um, and does that does that often mean doing a ton of research on whatever world that you're uh, setting your story? Always, in? yeah. Always, you know. Always. I mean, I was doing. I you know I still remain in the world of theater. We just did a production uh, called Working 2017, which began with the idea of what Studs Terkel did in the 60s with his book and play Working Musical Working. And I was doing some research on something, and I always loved that Studs Terkel thing. And uh, in doing the research, I came across The Myth of Sisyphus by Camus. And I read it again. It's a great essay. If those in the audience have not read it, they need to go read it right away. And it, it examines the idea of whether or not work is your salvation or it's the curse that destroys your life. And Camus ends with saying, one must imagine Sisyphus happy, pushing the rock up the hill. And that idea, in researching the movie, led to an idea for a play. <laughs> which who knows, you know, you couldn't imagine somebody sitting down and wanting to write a movie and then coming up with a play, but that's what happens with research. You don't know what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. And we just produced a play out here to, uh, to, to great reviews, and I'd like to try to do it in the rest of the country. And so it got done. It took about two years, but it got done. And that's the value of research. You don't know what you're going to find. If you leave yourself with an open mind, uh, you know, I didn't know I was going to land on Tamu while researching a movie, but that's what happens. You leave yourself open. And then when you're sort of um, done with the research process for a bit and you're starting to dive into an outline for a script or, or to the script itself, what do you begin with? Do you begin with uh, a character arc? Do you begin with um, the exciting scene we talked about? You know, uh, it's, it's always different, you know. Um, you know, with Million Dollar Baby, I just told you Paul optioned a book of five short stories. Um, with Kent and Wolf, there was a real-life incident that took place in Philadelphia in the 1980s. Um, with the movie that I just finished, I, always, I knew I wanted to make a noir movie, something that had classical overtones, so it was kind of new, I hoped. And I just finished shooting that movie in Rome, Italy, with Sofia Vergara, Carl Urban, and Andy Garcia. Um, so I think it's all the, the instigating idea, I think, can come from anywhere. But I know... The next question is, the next two questions, which is really the beginning of the process, is what's the story I'm telling and how do I want to tell it? And that's what people forget. Uh, how do I want to tell it? You know, there are staples in most genres or genres, however you'd like to say it. There are staples that make the great movies work. When I knew that I wanted to write a noir movie, I went, I studied every great noir movie ever made, especially the ones in the 50s and some of the 40s and 30s. Uh, and then you take those staples that make the great noir movie, and then you try to make your own. And you're going to write a comedy, and you don't study Billy Wilder, there's something wrong with you. Right. You know, if you want to write a drama, you don't study Patty Jayaski, there's something wrong with you. Right. These are the greats. You, you know, you go, you study them. So I, I think that defines the second question, how do I want to tell it? And the first question is with you, and you alone. What's the story I want to tell? Would you start a project without having an ending? Would you start writing? Um, probably not, but I would start with having a sense of what my ending was. I, I don't, you know, Haggis likes to say, you don't have an ending, you can't start. Uh, I, I disagree with him. Uh, you, you need to know where you're going, but I think if you lock your ending in, then you start locking in the story points to your ending as opposed to just having a general sense of where you're going. Mm hmm you know, I think you need to know where you're going. I think you need to know what your story is. But I think locking it in 
I think that can be really bad. Even on my cards, you know, when I work as an executive producer on television, you know, you got to put the cards up, and then if some writer's going to write an episode, they come in and they pitch you the cards. Mm-hmm. And very often it's a good story, and you say, great, go write it. More often than that, you do reworking of it, and they bring the cards back in. But if it's a good story, you say to the writer, go write it, and then they come back and they've written the outline, as opposed to using it as a guidepost, as a map to say, okay, I'm going from L.A. to New York, here's the route I'm going to take, and then leaving yourself open to the magic of the trip. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. If there are things that happen in the writing that if you start denying the, 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 the truth of something that happens, you say, well, it doesn't fit my outline. Well, then you change the outline. Right. You, you, you die for the magic. And many writers, um, if they lock themselves in an outline, then they don't find the magic of the actual writing, the spontaneity of stuff that happens that only happens in the moment. Well, so when you're not, you know, when you're when you're show running in TV, obviously you have to hand in story areas and outlines and then first drafts. When you're writing on your own, do you still write an outline or a story area or do you sometimes just talk yeah. it through with your assistants and then just start writing the script? think I've ever, except in my early days, start writing a script. I, I, I would not do that. Mm-hmm. What I do do, though, uh, you know, um, and for your young writers out there, mm-hmm. my first 14 scripts, I, I was so excited and wrote great 20 and 30 page scripts and then stopped because I didn't know where to go next. So I'd start over again and write another 20 or 30 pages. And that's because there was no structure. There was no idea. Um, so... Would I uh, give me your question again? Because I want to speak to it directly. Give I guess simply, you know, some writers. I've had a couple of people on the podcast who fucking hate outlines, and they would love to just start writing their script. And obviously, we can't do that in TV. But I'm wondering if outside of TV, you would prefer. Yeah, uh, you can do it if you're the executive producer and creator of the show, but you can't do that after that because you got to pitch to UT. Um, look, um, I think there's no hard and fast rule. I think any writer is better off with an outline that at least gives him a sense of where he's going. Where he's going. But I will say this, when Paul and I wrote Craft, and it's the only time he and I have ever done this, usually he's dead fast on cards, as I am, at least to give you a sense of where you're going. It didn't change at all in the writing, as I said a moment ago. But the way Craft happened is Paul and I, I don't know, we spoke for months, maybe half a year, about the ideas, the characters, what it is we want to try to explore in the movie. We spoke to a lot of, uh, of friends who were of different ethnicities, uh, including Anita Addison, a black woman who was an executive, and one of our early heroes. And they, they gave us their point of view from being um, in that world, from their own personal subject of look at the world of, for either it was, either it was an African-American, there was other people who were different uh, nationalities, and this is in cracks. We tried to talk to as many as possible and read about as many as possible. And then one day Paul said to me, you want to write the first scene? Hmm. And he had never said that to me before. And then 10 days later, we had a draft of Crash. Wow. Now, having said that, there was a randomness to Crash that might have lent itself, and Paul's instinct uh, knew that. And we didn't know we were going to continue writing. We just continued writing. But we had, you know, six months of talk under our belt. We had six months of exploring the world under our belt. We had a bunch of cards that, hey, this might be a good scene. That might be a good character. So if one's going to write without an outline, you'd better explore your world for a while first if you're going to choose that. And I'm not saying you you have to have an outline. I simply think that it's better to have a sense of where you're going and then change whatever you want, but have a sense. 
Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, you know, this project you said you were working on the other day with uh, with Billy Friedkin that you're going to write for John Cusack. Does it help you to have the actor in mind or does that sometimes feel limiting if you had your choice? No, I don't. You know, you know once in a while, you know, you have an actor in mind. But more often than that, you have a voice, some, usually someone from your own life. You know, uh, sometimes you'll have an actor's voice in mind. But I think I think more often than not, you have a voice that you hear. Mm-hmm. You know, and you write for that voice. Um, Billy and I wrote the pilot. I wrote the pilot. Billy's directed. We come up with a story together based on um, a, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright's play. Um, Tracy Letts wrote the play to Killer Joe. Then Billy Friedkin wrote the movie. Yeah, I, directed the movie. I love Killer Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just wrote the pilot. Oh my um, God! Fantastic. Thank you. Um, Can't wait. And, and and John Cusack has just come aboard based on having read the pilot, and then we're going out to networks next week. Love it. Um, I'm, Billy and I are breaking story for the uh, the 10 episodes, and it's a wonderful studio, E1, who uh, we really love the people over there. Um, so um, John didn't come aboard until after the pilot was written. Um, so, I, I, you know, maybe some people write to voices of characters, but I think more often than not, we write to the voices we hear. Right. And also, it's you know people from our lives. And something like Killer Joe, um, you know, that's a, that's an original story by Tracy Letts. How much responsibility do you feel to sort of get into Tracy Letts's voice versus making it your own? Well, like any adaptation, your responsibility is to the spirit of the piece on some front, mm-hmm. as opposed to anything other than that. You know, it's a different animal. You know, Tracy wrote a play. Tracy wrote a play that was different from the movie. The movie, the TV show, will be different than the uh, movie. Mm-hmm. And so, as so, but what 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 I did want to do is understand the origins of uh, this play, these characters. And Tracy had sent a a note to Billy uh, that he shared with me uh, about the origins of the character and the story and and, and what he was after. Uh, um, now we changed much of that, um, but the essence of it, you know. Uh, might remain, I don't know. But Tracy was, was quite wonderful. He said, it's yours now. You know, I wrote my play, I wrote my movie, the TV show is yours, and let me know if you need help. Which That's again, classy. Didn't post anything, um, as I hope I would, if someone took a piece of mine that, that I adapted. It's theirs. It becomes theirs. Mm-hmm. Like, you, 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 listen, I just wrote a movie uh, for some producers in New York that was very personal based on my experiences growing up. I'm not attached to direct that movie. I would love to direct it, but I'm not. People constantly saying to me, that's the most personal script I've ever seen of yours. Don't you want to know? I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, it's theirs now. They paid me a lot of money to write what they thought was going to be a great script. They were happy with the script. They're out to another director, and uh, there's nothing I can do about that. I don't want to impose what I want on that. I couldn't anyway. So you let it go. You know, I let that go. Tracy let this go. That's what we do. You know, we, we, we give everything, and then we let it go. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange new phenomenon in TV um, where so many, you know, famous films are now being adapted uh, for TV series. You know, I'm doing one myself with Sony, and oftentimes the writer of the TV show is is not the same as the screenwriter of the film. And um, because of that, you know, sort of just like you're saying, there's a very weird... Um, symbiotic relationship where the you know because a tv show is necessarily very very different than um a movie the writer has to use their own voice their own tone their own worldview um and has to decide sort of how much loyalty 
um, they have to to sort of the original product. And I think you're right that more often than not, it's better when the writer just sort of says, this is a new project, this is my thing now. Well, it has to be. I mean, if if I tried to write as Tracy Letts, it would be an abject failure. Billy would hate me, the studio would hate me, the network would hate me, a Cusack never would have signed up. Right. <laughs> you, you know, I'm not Tracy Letts. I'm not a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. I'm Bobby Moresco has had some success in some areas, but that, that's who I am. I and mean, for me to try to be Tracy would have been nuts. Right. And he understood it, and I understood it. Now, you know, there was a movie that I called Donnie Brasco. One of the first things I created for television was a show called Falcone. You remember the movie Donnie Brasco with Johnny Depp? Sure, Mike Newell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mike Newell. Well, they made a movie with Johnny Depp, and then I adapted for television uh, called Falcone, starring Jason Gedrick, a great, wonderful actor and friend. The real Donnie Brasco was hired as a consultant, and I plunged into the world that he could tell me. And so, you know, much of that show was about the real-life experiences of Donnie Brasco that Mike Newell didn't use at uh, Antonazio, didn't use in the writing, Paul Antonazio, the writer of Donnie Brasco. So it was the same source material from my point of view, but different stuff. So, you know, it depends on the piece, it depends on the notion, it depends on the character. But most importantly, I think anybody who adapts anything, your responsibility is to the spirit of the piece. And then after that, if you don't make it your own, then you shouldn't do it. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So we've kept you for a while here. I want to, um, I want to play a clip. You know, I asked you what clip from your very large body of work that you'd want to play and discuss. And you picked a scene from your 2006 film, Tenth and Wolf. Um, uh, just to set up the scene briefly before we hear it, uh, it's late in the movie. Cousins Giovanni Ribisi and James Marsden are in a park and they get a call from Marsden's brother, played by Brad Renfro, who we see is tied up in a chair. He's beaten. He's terrified. Someone is holding the phone to his ear. Um, so let's play the scene and then we'll discuss it. May I speak to Tommy, please? Yeah, he wants to talk to you to find out what's wrong. Talk to him. Hey, hey, Vincent, it's Tommy. Where are you? I'm sorry I called Joey. I, I would have called you, but... I couldn't remember your number. Vince, it's all right. Just tell me where you are. What's he saying? <laughs> I'm in that alley, Tommy. You know where I said I'd be? What are you talking about, Vincent? Tommy, just find out where he is. Sorry for what I said to you. I know you, Tommy. I know there's got to be a good reason for whatever it is you're doing. All right. Calm down, all right? Talk to me. Just tell me where you are. Tell me what the, we'll, we'll fix it. No matter what, whatever the problem is, we'll fix it, okay? They wanted me to set you up. Who? Give me the phone. You and Joey. But these grease balls don't know us guys from Tint and Wolf. That's time. Keep up. Vincent! Fuck these four motherfuckers, Tommy! Hey! Vincent, Vincent! Hey, hey, you, hey, hey, no. Fuck them where they breathe! Listen to me, Tommy, give me the phone. Fuck these motherfuckers where they breathe! Vincent! Vincent! Oh, fuck! No, Vincent, Vincent, wait! What the fuck is going on, Tommy? Hey, Tommy! I'm not sure what to do. Not on me. Adieu. Hey! Hey, no, please, no, no, listen to me, I show you, kid. You fucking lay one hand on him. No, God. Fuck 
So for people who are who are just listening and haven't seen the movie, so that's the sound, of course, of um, James Morrison's brother, Brad Renfro, being strangled to death while, you know, his brother and his cousin are on the phone listening. Um, do you, I know it was a while ago, but do, do you remember writing the scene? Do you remember anything about um, how you crafted it? Yeah, I remember it clearly. Um, you know, the movie is about... You know, people forget, you know, mobster movies, they become mobsters and gangsters and tough guys, but they forget they're good people, you know, and they started out as kids together. And these three cousins, two brothers and a cousin, grew up together. They had certain ideas. And at some point you get a little bit older and those ideas are challenged. You think you know who you are as a man. And um, Tommy, played by Jimmy Marsden, disagreed with the choices that were made in this neighborhood in South Philadelphia where their uncles and fathers were all mobsters that had a certain ethic. And then he came back home and by virtue of a series of events wound up back in that world. And the kid Vincent, Brad Renfro, and Giovanni Berbisi um, stayed in the world and they thought they, they, you know, they thought they were this idea of what a, a man was, what a mobster was. Then they were faced with, what is it really like to be in that world? And I knew that if I was going to kill one of the brothers, they had to be involved. They had to be helpless. Because once you go into a world that, like that, at some point there's somebody bigger than you, there's somebody stronger than you, there's somebody absolutely that makes you feel helpless while you watch the person you love most in the world die, or listen in this case. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, I was, I was after a couple of things, which is, you know, what's the price you pay when you make certain choices in life? And then once you pay those choices, what do you do about it? And then I think, you know, the reason I like the scene also, because visually there's some things that happen that speak to what I just said the scene was about, which is, you know, at some point you realize in life, no matter where you are, all the power you think you have, you have none of it. Uh, And then the other thing, though, which I really like is Vincent, the younger brother, the baby, has a speech earlier where he says, you know, if I was in an alley, and somebody put a gun to my head, I'd, I'd protect you, Tommy. I'd stand up. I'd make sure that I'd die before I gave you up. And then he's faced with it. And even though he's killed, he, he says, I'm in that alley. And he's being told by the Italian mobsters to tell his cousin and his brother to come see him, but he's going to have something to say. And he's supposed to lure them in. And he stands up in that alley. He pays for it with his life, but he actually lives up to suit the value that he thought he had most in the world, which was loyalty, not toughness, but mm-hmm. loyalty. Mm-hmm. So those are things I liked about the scene, and those are things I tried to explore, the questions of power, the loss of power, um, maturity, growing up from a place where you think you know who you are, and finding out you don't, and then the idea of what's most important to you, for instance, with loyalty, and it, it became the salvation and death. So, you know, whether people get that from the scene, I don't know, but those are the things I, w- I was playing with. And it's also, you just do so such a great job of raising the tension in the scene. You know, the fact that the James Marsden character is on the phone and so completely powerless to help his, um, you know, his brother being killed. I also love how you have Giovanni Ribisi keep intruding. You know, he keeps saying, give me the phone, give me the phone, give me the phone, which really ups the tension. Yeah, because he knows he's losing, you know, for him, he's moving up in the world. He's tasted power. He knows what it feels like to be the boss to have killed with impunity. And he feels it slipping away in that scene. Yeah. 
it's slipping away, and that's why he keeps breaking in. He needs to get control back. He needs to become the boss again, and he knows intrinsically, no matter how he tries, it's never going to be the same. Right. Even though he, even though he can't speak to that, what he can speak to is give me the phone. Right. Right. And the way those are the ideas that were behind the scenes. And and I'm curious also. I mean, I don't know if this is in the script or you know it, it, when you shot it. Um, you know the the scene with the um, Giovanni Ribisi and James Marsden in the park on the phone. You know, it's a it's a lot of it is in a big wide shot, and we see the the park, and maybe there's a swing set or something behind them. And then the other side of the conversation, Brad Renfro, it's very tight on him. We don't even see the people standing behind him, and so there's this sort of very ominous feeling. Is 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 that something you realized when you were writing the script, or did it take to production to figure that out? No, in the script, we knew we went back to the park where they grew up. There's scenes earlier in the movie where mm -hmm. we see them as kids in that park. Mm -hmm. And we knew we were leaving youth behind there forever, and life to, to a certain extent with Vincent. And so we put it back in the park on purpose. You know, um, that's number one. Number two, the visuals, you know, you always work out with your DP. Um, I don't think I knew that we were going to rise so high. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't know because we called in the crane, but I probably worked out those details with my DP and talking about it beforehand. What's the scene about? And then we realized, yeah, you know, um, this is what it's about. And you find the visuals, everything I just said to you, what I thought the scene was about, you find the visuals most of the time with your DP. More often than not, he'll give you a better idea than you thought you had. Right. As long as you've talked over what the scene's about. Right. And yeah, it just, it works so well. Um, you know, and the movie is great and, and the cast is amazing. You know, in addition to those actors, there's Piper Perabu and Dennis Hopper and Brian Dennehy and Val Kilmer. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's they, amazing. They're all terrific to work with. I, I, I think some of those actors uh, it might be some of their best work. I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. I love Giovanni Mabusi. I think he's, I think it's my, my favorite work that he's done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Dennis Hopper, I've worked for them three different things and he's just, he was just a joy and a good friend that I miss him. Mm. Um, all right. Well, we've kept you a while here, Bobby. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and doing this and uh, talking about your craft. Well, you know what? It's great to talk to you again, Aaron. Yeah. I hope I see you soon. And, and my best to anybody who listens to this. I hope they get a little something out of it. Awesome. Thanks, Bobby. Hey, stay well. Bye. So that was Bobby. Um, hope you could hear him all right. He's, yeah, I mean, he's an amazing guy. I love, he's always quoting. Um, you know, I think he quoted from Einstein and uh, what, what did he give us? He gave us a little Camus. He's always doing that, uh, which is just so endearing and, and kind of fun uh, when I was working with him. By the way, I'd also put up, we didn't talk about this, but his show, The Black Donnellys, was an NBC show, I believe uh, he did um, a bunch of years ago. Uh, starring a young Olivia Wilde, and I would hold up the pilot of Black Donnelly's against almost anything. It is just kind of a perfect uh, hour of television. So thanks so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.